Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 24th, 2022. And depending how you look at it, the news is terrible. Um, the Wall Street S&P 500 has entered correction territory as global stocks sell off, according to the FT. Uh, we have a picture of Joe Biden. Looks like he needs a drink, although I'm not sure if actually Joe Biden does drink. Maybe he should. Might cheer him up or make him look less old. Um, all the headlines are the same thing. Um, the FT uh, has, a, has a picture of uh, a trader on the telephone. They always have these pictures of traders on telephones when the market crashes. I would have preferred a picture perhaps of a trader at a bar nursing a beer or a glass of wine or a whiskey might be a better summary of their current mood, losing fortunes. Um, New York Times talks about Wall Street's losing stretch, stre uh, losing streets stretching into a fourth week. Times loves bad news, seems to confirm their view of the world. Uh, and of course, the Times is also reporting on the brewing, and I perhaps use that word carefully, war between the West and Russia over Ukraine. Not all the news, though, um, is bad. Apparently, again, according to the New York Times, Omicron spread could end. And on the West Coast, the news is pretty good. The 49ers won at the weekend, basically without playing American football. They got a very lucky touchdown, and now they're in the championship game. Um, we are today talking alcohol, the celebration uh, of things, and uh, perhaps also uh, mourning things. There's always an excuse for a good drink, and later this week we have a show with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, um, the author of a wonderful new book on Winston Churchill called Churchill Shadow. Here we have an image of Churchill with a cigar in his mouth, and we got another cigar-smoking alcohol expert on the show today, a man called Dave Infante. He's an alcohol expert, and he has a wonderful, um, he has a wonderful um, uh, newsletter on alcohol and online culture called Fingers Up on Substack, and I'm thrilled that Dave is joining us from South Carolina. Dave, um, there's always a good reason to have a drink, isn't there? Always. Always, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be here. Well, talk to me about whether or not we should be drinking to celebrate or to mourn, or both. I know you're moving, which explains <laughs> why you have that um, backdrop of boxes. You're going from South Carolina to New Jersey. I think we should be mourning for you, Dave. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in the middle of the nightmarish experience of, of moving uh house i'm moving states uh, i'm going north in the middle of winter which is no fun um so i've got yeah there's been a lot you know i've got a lot of friends here in charleston that i've been sharing drinks with because i'm, I'm headed out of town so i've actually been on a bit of a a, a bender over the course of the past three I weeks think or so life is a history of benders isn't it <laughs> i don't know yeah to some extent sure i guess i'm drinking drinking heavily i'm 33 years old i've slowed down since i was in my my college years, but, uh, yeah, I still, I drink a bunch, you know, I, it comes with the territory, Andrew. 
Where's the cigar, Dave? I should have warned you in advance. Uh, we're doing the show at the end of the week on Winston Churchill. We should have begun with a cigar. Do you smoke before lunchtime? I don't. No, no smoking. Smoking is like a special occasion for me. You know, I'll I'll fire up a cigar probably you know half dozen times a year, but I'm not a regular cigar smoker. I can't really handle it. Although, whenever I'm like taking a break from drinking, I will smoke more cigars. Uh, you know, trade one vice for the other. But I don't think I was up there with uh, Churchill's cigar consumption habit. Churchill was quite a drinker, wasn't he? Did, in terms of your interest in the culture of drinking, are there iconic drinkers, uh, yeah. particularly journalists? Uh, uh, yeah, for Thompson, sure. I'm thinking. I mean, obviously, Winston Churchill was also not only was did he save the free world, or at least he thinks he saved the free world, but he was also <laughs> a very successful journalist. Is there something that goes with the territory? Um, uh, you you have a piece which I'll find in a minute about um, uh, the tab and Venmo and 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 the culture, the uh, the drinking culture amongst journalists. Sure, yeah, yeah. So there's a few things going on, right? I mean, historically, certainly, um, writers in the UK and the in the US, I think there are larger than life personalities. Um, in journalism who are also prolific drunks, right? Like Hemingway was uh, notorious for his drinking. Uh, you mentioned Hunter S. Thompson, um, you know, going, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other, John Cheever uh, was an alcoholic. Um, Dylan Thomas, who is not American, I believe, was he British or Irish? I forget. Uh, he, you know, uh, legend has it, he drank himself to death. I mean, there's uh, historically and culturally, there's a, um, a long tradition of writers sort of uh, uh, taking to the bottle as a way to um, sort of unle unleash their creativity, uh, to to lick their wounds, to... Uh, is, it to all, is it all men? Uh, my son's been busy rereading re Jenny Diskey. She was also a big drinker. So women can also get into this too, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's alcohol, man. It's uh, it takes all comers. Um, I was trying to think of some of the, you know, like the highest profile um, examples. But yeah, I mean, uh, certainly, um, you know, well, I think well, like what should we make, Dave, of politicians like Trump and Biden who don't drink? Is there something wrong with them? Trump uh, was a T. I mean, there's clearly something wrong with both of them, but uh, and pretty much any politician, politician that aspires to the highest office in the land, I think, you know, by default has to be a sociopath, whether it's alcohol or otherwise. Uh, no, I don't ascribe like a lot of moral judgment to people who don't drink. I, you know, some people are like, oh, tea, I don't trust a teetotaler. Uh, that doesn't, there's a lot of reasons to not trust politicians, but whether or not they drink alcohol does not really factor into my assessment of them. Your mileage may vary. Where, where did you grow up, Dave? I grew up in New Jersey. So I was born in Connecticut and I grew up in New Jersey um, and was in New York City after college for about a decade. And then only recently moved down to South Carolina about three and a half years ago. It's interesting that uh, I came across you uh, when I interviewed Meredith Haggerty, another uh, Substack writer. She has a, a really interesting um, airmail um, newsletter. She strongly recommended you. When you've made a career out of writing, not just about alcohol, but about the sort of broader popular culture associated with alcohol, as well as the, the politics, when did you get into all this? How did you find your calling as a writer focusing on alcohol and the alcohol industry? 
Well, first of all, Meredith is great, and I'm so glad uh, she recommended me. I recommend yeah, her. Great, a wonderful interview with her. Oh, she's terrific. And what's funny is that the reason we crossed paths in the first place is because, like, a lot of the uh, obscenely wealthy families that, uh, you know, have heiresses and, and scions and whatever are also uh, ones who've made their fortune in uh, in the liquor business or the beer business. So it's fun. I mean, you know, alcohol touches all things. It's a very popular uh, consumer good and people don't think of it that way, but it, it it's very close to the levers of power, um, you know, because a lot of the people who, who, uh, who, you know, control the alcohol business are also the ones who uh, factor mightily in politics, right? Like, because they have the money to, to play. But uh, yeah, it's great. Also, just to add, it goes the other way as well, um, especially out here in California. Uh, what do the wealthy people do when they acquire their fortune? They buy a vineyard, probably mostly lose their money. Right. Uh, but it also attracts money. It's a glamorous industry, particularly the wine industry and I guess the high-end beer industry and obviously the, the whiskey and spirits industries. Yeah. And I, you know, there's that joke, uh, this can be applied to any number of businesses. Yeah. But here, here people talk about, you know, how to make a small fortune in, in vineyards is to start with a large fortune, that type of thing. Um, yeah, I think those are mostly vanity money losing propositions, um, that, you know, are a lifestyle play for those rich people. But, uh, the question that you had asked, and then I got off on a tangent because I was singing Meredith's praises, is how I got into writing about alcohol and how I got into writing generally. Um, so I came up, I graduated from college in 2010. I was an English major, uh, so I graduated with a, a Bachelor in Art. Where did um, you go to college, Dave? The University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville, Ooh. Virginia. Yeah. I bet that's a big drinking culture there. Yeah, I mean, there's huge Greek life there. Uh, you know, so fraternities and sororities are very big there, um, and that drives a lot of the the drinking culture. Uh, you you hear people say that it used to be even more kind of severe and intense. Um, I don't know how much of that's true and how much of it's just kind of like the nostalgia for the past. But whatever the case may be, the drinking culture at the University of Virginia is is pretty ingrained. I mean, the nickname for the mascot is the Wahoos. Um, and like a popular urban legend is that a Wahoo, they're named Wahoos because uh, a Wahoo is a fish that can um, drink, you know, multiple times its body weight in water. Um, so the idea being that Wahoos are heavy drinkers or they're able to, to drink quite a bit. I don't know whether that's true. I'm not a marine biologist, but the point is that uh, UVA, you know, really values its drinking culture and has drinking societies and all that bullshit. Oh, sorry. Can we swear? Am I allowed to swear? You are definitely, especially since we're talking about drinking. Um, okay. You're still, you're still, um, you're circling around the question. So you, you were at UVA, you, you were an undergraduate. Yeah. So how did you get into writing about alcohol? I graduated in 2010. I moved up to New York City. Uh, I knew I wanted to write for a living. I wasn't sure what that would entail. Um, I really didn't know anything about the media business, anything about publishing. Um, I took a unpaid internship because that was much more common in the media business uh, 12 years ago than it is now, or at least somewhat more common. Um, at a small website called Thrillist, uh, which was, you know, food and drink newsletters that they sent out to, uh, you know, an audience of dudes, basically, in various different cities. Um, I was an editorial intern. I was, you know, doing the most menial tasks. Uh, and I was basically just kind of running out of money. Um, I was crashing on a buddy's couch for six months and basically had tapped out all of my savings that I had kind of saved up to get to New York with. And... 
um, right as I was going to have to take a crappy job in like advertising, copywriting or whatever, uh, I, someone at Thrillist left and there was an opening at the bottom of the ladder and, uh, and I took it and I was there for seven and a half years. So I was there for a long time, uh, in terms of the digital media ecosystem. I mean, entire companies like are founded and implode, um, you know, in just a couple years in that, uh, in that sector, it's extremely fluid and chaotic. So Thrillist grew while I was there and, and I grew with it, uh, for, for many years. Uh, you mentioned journalists and, and drinking. You've got this nice piece from 2020 uh, on who's got the bar tab Venmo. And the subtitle is when journalists get laid off, other journalists get them drunk. Unfortunately, too many journalists are getting laid off. One fix for journalists to make a living in the digital age is through Substack. Uh, you have your newsletter. Is Substack and uh, other self-publication platforms like Substack. Are they the answer, Dave, to the crisis of media for independent journalists like yourself? Can you make a living on platforms like Substack? I think they're part of an answer. Uh, I don't think they would hold themselves out as the answer, but, you know, I can't speak for them, but where I'm where I see them fitting in is, uh, you know, and, and platforms like at Patreon and um, uh, button down email and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the answer, right? Like I'm, I've been in the business for at this point, 12 years. Um, I need a place to be able to publish the work that I care about. And unfortunately, like with the amount of consolidation in the, in the digital media business and just the media business generally over the course of the past three decades, and certainly the decade that I've been in it, um, is that, you know, there's not that many places to pitch stories and the ones that still take stories, like they pay shit, like it's terrible. What, is um, it? what, uh, what, what are we talking about, uh, say, a, a, a thousand or two thousand word piece? Well, one of the problems is that digital media doesn't really pay per word, right? Like print was still paying per word. So you can back yourself into a pretty good payoff if you sell a feature and it's going to be a three thousand word feature and you're getting two bucks a word from GQ or from uh, The New Yorker or whoever, right? Like you're going to wind up taking home six grand and that... Right, but very few people get to write for the New Yorker. That's the, the top gig in the business, right? Well, sure. But I mean, go on down the line. Like there used to be more magazines, just like there used to be more websites publishing. Um, these days, yeah, man. I mean, like I'd, you know, you'd be lucky to be getting 500 bucks for a thousand word, uh, thousand word story. So 50 cents a word. And that's for reporting. If it's not reporting and it's just kind of like a personal essay or, you know, uh, uh, whatever, it's going to be less than that. So obviously there's variance and some publications pay better. Um, but yeah, you can't really make a living like that as a, as a freelance journalist. So if we, if we were to raise a drink, Dave, we would be drinking to the death rather than the birth of journalism in the digital age. Yeah. The kind of the, the death rattle maybe, you know, like I think there's still people doing great journalism and there are people who, are willing to sacrifice quality of life, sacrifice, you know, spending potential, uh, whatever you want to call it, because they're true believers in the mission. Um, but it's getting harder and harder to be, a, you know, to follow through on it, right? And, you know, it, I have friends who are newspaper journalists, and they're kind of the biggest sickos in the business, because they're, they're the real, they're the, the longest suffering of, of us all, you know, they, they get paid terrible money, they live in, you know, random places that they have no tie to because they're just kind of following the work. Um, and, you know, every step of the way, 
consolidation in the newspaper business is just destroying jobs forever. And yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, what's the answer? No more local news. Like we may be headed that way. Uh, will Substack replace the, 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 you know, role that local newspapers filled? I don't think so. I mean, it's a great platform and it's powerful tools for independent writers, but like people need health insurance, people need, uh, uh, legal, you know, support people need, uh, you know, the ability to, um, spend three weeks on a, on a big feature story that's uncovering, you know, accountability journalism, uh, that's uncovering, you know, uh, a politician's misdeeds or whatever. Substack can offer some of those things to some extent. They have a health insurance program. They have a legal defender program. Uh, but it's no replacement for a newsroom. And what will replace it? I don't know. I, I don't I don't have a bright view of the future of local news. I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find anyone who knows what they're talking about in this country who has a bright view of, of local news. Um, but it's certainly not me. Well, your your bleak view, Dave, is uh, reflected in those boxes behind you. You're about to go back to New Jersey. A bleak future for Dave Infante, but I'm thrilled we got him <laughs> in South Carolina and his South Carolina moment before he leaves. He's the author of Fingers, um, uh, a wonderful newsletter on uh, Substack, Drinking Culture, Being Online and Beyond. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, Dave, now. And then after the break, I want to talk specifically about the politics, or at least your view of the politics of the uh, of the alcohol business, of, uh, of, of high-end breweries, and lots of other subjects. So stay with us, and we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We're back with Dave Infante, the editor of the, uh, the Substack newsletter Fingers. He's New Jersey bound, which explains the boxes behind him. Dave, uh, I have to confess, I used to live in... Um, 
I used to live in Santa Rosa, and I'm an old hand at the Russian River Brewery, a uh, big fan of Pliny the Elder. Uh, I've never actually tasted Pliny the Younger because I've never been willing to wait in line, one of the, the most popular of the high-end craft beers. Um, and the Russian River is also a wonderful place to go, although they've rebuilt it. I think they've ruined it to some extent. However, reading your stuff uh, put me off, made me slightly embarrassed as a older white dude. Um, you have exposed perhaps some of the, the racial and elitist and hypocritical nature of the, the craft beer business and culture. You talk about the hype beasting of craft beer. What's going on with craft beer, Dave? Is it a scam? It's not a scam. It's in a very strange moment in its life cycle. It's in its awkward, uh, like, like early 20s, just got back from college, maybe living at home, can't really figure its life out, not sure what it's there for. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, craft beer started as a direct response to uh, consolidation in the U.S. brewing market after prohibition. So following the repeal of prohibition, um, the big regional breweries that were able to hang on uh, throughout the, the ban of alcohol in the U.S. by producing non-beer products, you know, near beer and ice cream and cereal and things like that. Um, some of them weathered the storm better than others, and some of them had you know more visionary leadership and deeper pockets than others. And and so what happened uh, was they went on a tear and started you know either running out of business or acquiring um, their regional and then national competitors. And the most famous of this one, or the most famous brewery in this category, was Anheuser Busch, which is based in St. Louis, Missouri. It's the biggest. Um, it was the biggest beer company in the world in two, until 2008 when it was uh, hostily taken over by the Brazilian and Belgian firm InBev. Uh, so now it's Anheuser-Busch InBev, and that's the biggest beer company in the world. Um, craft Brewing uh, started uh, in 1978. Jimmy Carter uh, you know, signed legislation that allowed home brewing to be legal uh, in, in Americans' homes, right? And so this is kind of the precursor and, and sort of the water, a watershed moment that created, you know, craft beer as we know it today. You have more hobbyists getting into beer. They're brewing different styles instead of just the light macro lagers, you know, the, the light, you know, Budweiser's and, and, and Miller High Life, which are all basically the same. They're very similar beers, right? Like they kind of all taste the same. They're pretty bland. They're pretty light. They're inoffensive. You know, P Americans were starting to experience, uh, you know, what, more full flavored beers could taste like people, you know, like the folks at Russian river were early in this, in this scene. Right. And so for 20 years, uh, it kind of carried along as just kind of a, like a little side, like a crunchy little sideshow, right? Like there are these kind of weirdos with beards out in the Pacific Northwest, uh, who, and you know, Northern California who are, uh, making these like funky beers and and they like it, but this was not a business, Andrew. Not not a significant one in any case, right? These are this is very much hobbyists who are kind of selling their beer to their friends and their local community, but aren't um, have no aspirations to take over a significant share of the U.S. beer uh, industry. But you know, come 2010 or so, uh, you know, so another 20 years ahead. Um, Craft beer really starts to take off. Uh, it it starts growing like a weed. 
Um, it goes from about 1,200 breweries uh, to, you know, by the end of the decade tw in 2020, you're looking at over 8,000 breweries. Um, this is massive uptick in the the producers uh, that are getting involved in brewing craft beer. Um, also, consumer awareness is running really high. Everyone's excited about beer. It was close to like the dominant, I would say maybe the dominant, um, you know, counterculture of like beverage alcohol in the United States. Like that was leading the charge uh, as a kind of anti-commodity um, specialty food and drink product, craft it was, beer was. It, it, it was associated with the A word. It was authentic, wasn't it? Or seemed to be authentic. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, authentic and artisanal and, um, you know, sort of carried the halo of the slow food movement because it's local. You're using better ingredients. I mean, these are very, you know, they sound very trite and cliched to us now, but at the time, like, those were really compelled, compelling messages um, to be putting out into, into the, to the mainstream, you know, uh, consumer ecosystem. People were responding to this stuff. People liked this beer, uh, and they liked the culture that surrounded it just as much. But as you know, the, the business grew, um, it became a serious industry in its own right. So not just a sideshow anymore. And, you know, the big brewing companies, Anheuser-Busch wow. in, InBev and Molson Coors and, um, you know, uh, uh, Heineken, Constellation, they're always looking, you know, these are massive conglomerates. They, they manage portfolios, right? So they don't do a lot of innovation in-house, but what they do is they look for areas of growth and then they come in with, you know, uh, uh, deep pockets and they buy smaller, more innovative players. This is the CPG, the consumer packaged goods, you know, playbook, um, both outside of the beer industry and within it. And ABI, you know, in 2011 is looking at this, this small Chicago firm, this craft brewery called Goose Island and says, well, hang on, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. People are really excited about the beer they're producing. We've tried and failed to develop that type of full flavored beer in house at ABI. So why don't we just buy these guys why don't we why don't we just so, so, so the industry begins to take off you you wrote a, a piece um saying uh craft beer is part of america and america has problems one of the problems you note um not about growing up one of the problems is that um uh, quoting from a, a thrillist piece you wrote there are almost no black people brewing craft beer so did the takeoff of craft beer industry, did it reflect some of the, the problems of America in the 20-teens and perhaps in the early 2020s? I think so. I mean, a lot of my reporting is, you know, using the beer industry and craft beer specifically as a crucible to understand what's going on. In the a book there, Dave. Are you considering putting that into a book? I think it's an interesting book, how what, what the beer industry and the craft beer industry tell us about America and vice versa. I've got a proposal ready to go, Andrew. You have an agent? Let's uh, let's get them on the line, man. Let's do it. <laughs> um, you know, I think like, here's the thing is how many beer books have you read though? Because the thing is, beer books don't really sell. So you go to- wine any... books? Why do wine books sell and beer books don't? For the same reason that people buy 30, you know, $30 bottles of wine, but balk at a $20 four pack. I mean, wine is- those tourists who queue up overnight for, for Pliny the Younger in Santa Rosa every spring? I mean, do they, I, they, yeah, that's sure. That's 200 people. But how many of them read books, first of all? And second of all, that's not... I know, think like, I'm Japanese. Not that I'm against the Japanese, but they, they ship in some Japanese tourists. They're probably not there this year because of uh, COVID. COVID, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, I use craft beer as kind of a prism to understand what's going on in America with regards to race, which, with regards to class, um, labor, uh, the environment. I, I find it to be a very uh, illuminating you know, means to kind of get at the core of these issues in a way that people still are willing to read about, right? Like, it's not so fun to um, just read about racism. Um, it's a lot more interesting, I think, to have an angle that people care about. Why, like why, why um, African-Americans not into craft beer? It's not, it's not that they're not into it. It's that they, there aren't, they have been denied access to, uh, the capital they need to open breweries, uh, to the, you know, schooling and expertise they need to become trained brewers, um, to the neighborhoods where it's, you know, you might be able to enjoy craft beer more organically in the first place. So they never even get as interested in it, or there's not enough cult, you know, of, of, uh, they're not welcomed into the cultural spaces that craft beer occupies, um, you know, that, that story, I think I wrote in like 2015 or so, um, you know, the situation is, I think gotten a little bit, the, the industry has gotten a little bit more diverse, a little less, less white since then, but it's still, um, you know, it is not proportional to the, the U S demographics at large. And it's yeah, for all the, you've also written uh, interestingly enough about, um, uh, the way in which uh, the radical right has sort of appropriated some of the language of alcohol, alcoholic culture. You had a piece in fingers, the language of the big, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, big luau. Yeah, the luau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Um, Man, you really uh, went through the archive. Kudos to you I for doing your research. research. Yeah. Uh, to what extent has the craft beer industry being to some extent sort of appropriated by the radical right. Um, especially as you've also noted that the, the beer industry or big beer has always been controlled by conservative families and, 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 and articulated a, a pretty union busting conservative politics. Some more than others, for sure. Actually just today I was uh, taking note of the fact that Coors uh, Brewing Company, uh, which is, you know, based in Golden, Colorado. It's one of the most recognizable uh, old, you know, American breweries out there is uh, selling like merchandise. And one of the like styles of the merchandise is like, it's called like labor. So you can buy like a Coors Banquet like hoodie and the the like style of the hoodie is is labor. I don't know why it's named that, but it's interesting to me because Coors is infamously um, anti-labor movement and has been for decades. I mean, Joe Coors, who's, you know, was for a time the, the leader of the Coors, uh, brewery and also, you know, one of the, the family elders, um, he was, he was the president there. Uh, he wrote the check that launched the heritage foundation and he funded Reagan's, you know, run to the white house. So you're absolutely right that some of the families that are involved in, uh, in manufacturing, um, you know, beer at the, at the corporate level or at the commodity level um, are extremely conservative in their politics. Craft yeah, uh, on the West coast of particular Silicon Valley, there's a buzz now, as I'm sure you know about web three, these supposedly new democratizing technologies on like, the blockchain, uh, baby blockchain, NFT. You've written about this. Um, uh, you write uh, a piece in, in, in Vinpack. Can NFTs provide a, a fraud proof marketplace for Bourbon? Um, bourbon, um, can technology change the 
the alcohol industry, the beer industry, the high-end um, spirits industry, the wine industry, can it democratize or are always going to have the Joe Coors in control? I think it, we're always going to have the Joe Coors types in control. I don't see technology uh, usurping or upheaving um, the massive, you know, dynasties that control the global beverage alcohol trade anytime soon. I, that's just unlikely to me. I mean, the amount of capital expenditure it takes to get into one of these businesses, even at the small scale, I mean, a, a, a small craft brewer down the block will tell you how insanely expensive it is to build a brewery. These, these are entrenched players that are not going anywhere. Um, I do think that technology has a role to play in, uh, develop or in, uh, in delivering more access to the products. And I do think that there are interesting applications of blockchain technology, for example, for verifying, uh, the provenance of goods. I don't know if you've ever read the book billionaires vinegar, but billionaires yeah. vinegar is, is about, um, uh, the potential, uh, defrauding of wine collectors in the eighties, uh, the eighties and nineties when the, the wine auction um, world was just kind of uh, coming online. And there are probably needs for better verification and authentication. So I think we'll see some of that there, right? Like for luxury goods, um, I see the application there. Budweiser is, has done some pretty interesting things with, uh, with, with NFTs. They're, they're issuing NFTs for some of their le legacy intellectual property. I mean, they have a 200 year old library of every ad and every logo and every marketing material they've ever created. And they've issued NFTs, you know, so fans can own those, uh, those digital receipts of that correspond to some of the intellectual property. That's interesting. And I think it's cool. And I would, I would be surprised if more legacy firms, um, that have that type of intellectual property trove don't, go that route as well because it's kind of it seems yeah, like uh, one company one british company that's really thrown itself into trying to invent itself as a transparent democratic 21st century capitalist company is a um, british company called brew dog uh, john alexander is the author of, <laughs> of citizens um he's coming on the show in the next couple of weeks he writes very optimistically about brew dog uh but You've um, you've written about uh, the the scandals associated with Brewdog. Are companies like Brewdog using craft beer as a way to um, tell fibs about what they're really up to? I think that there's a recent phenomenon of the craft brewing business as it became much more ingrained in American culture. Um, it, it became a much bigger business and kind of carries all the ills that are associated with, um, unfettered commerce. Yeah. Um, but drinkers still think of these businesses as very progressive, very, you know, sort of community oriented. There's a real progressive sheen, um, that a lot of these companies really benefit by whether or not they're, actually practicing what they preach, so to speak. Brewdog is not alone in that regard where kind of the, you know, when the rubber meets road, it seems like some of the values that they profess are not the ones that they practice, but Brewdog is the biggest, you know, it's a Scottish brewing firm. It's the biggest craft brewery in Europe. 
Um, it's a top 50 brewer in the United States. Uh, it has John Alexander is really hot on it. He really thinks that they are the future of a progressive capitalism. There are a lot of skeptics, though, on, on not just BrewDog, but on that model. You can call me as, yeah, I, I would put myself probably more in the skeptic camp. I mean, I've reported not just about the discrimination and, and the, the workplace conditions and the allegations of um, uh, uh, harassment and whatever that have followed the company for over a decade. Um, but I've, I also reported deeply on their crowdfunding program, which is called Equity for Punks. Um, and I published that big report in VinePair in July, in June, 2021, July, 2021. Um, I, you know, you dig through the financials of that program. It's not that they're doing anything that's illegal. In fact, I would, I would go out of my way to point out that it is all legal, at least the materials that I saw. I think the question is, should it be first of all? And second of all, um, do investors understand what they're buying into? Because the way it's marketed and the way the company has explicitly marketed it in the past is an opportunity for, you know, tremendous, you know, quadruple digit uh, percentage growth year over year, right? Yeah, like I mean, that. Uh, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something very disturbing about the way they use the technology and the ideology of a progressive capitalism to promote themselves. Finally, we, we, we began, uh, Dave, how you got into this business. Um, uh, you wrote a wonderful, uh, and you got in as a college student uh, at UVA and started writing about booze. You you wrote on fingers recently. Will you ever grow up? You have a wonderful photo of Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. Should we grow up from our drinking culture? You suggest the boozy intergenerational American horror story of pool parties in suburbia is not altogether a good thing. Might there be an argument to give up drink? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, that's not really what I was arguing in that piece, but I... What were you I, arguing in the piece? So that was, I think, May, it was like Memorial Day 2020, right? So we were going on like month three of lockdowns in, you know, the coronavirus pandemic was still very new. Um, and there were videos that were starting to come out of people flouting the lockdowns and going to like shitty pool parties for spring break or whatever. Um, and my point... I think that I was getting at in that essay was that people, uh, Americans in particular find themselves, you know, are often quite selfish. Right. And, and I think the term I used in that I, I lifted from a fellow writer, his name is Miles Klee. Um, Americans were already three months into the pandemic in fuck it mode, uh, where they're just like, yeah, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Right. And, um, I used the John Cheever story of the swimmer, which is a very famous short story of his, um, as a way that alcohol um, sort of uh, fuels some of that nihilism or cynicism or selfishness, whatever you want to call it. That's what I was arguing there. More generally, yeah, I've heard you pitch the idea that prohibition might be the next thing coming down well, the pipe. My wife is a big, uh, big uh, Stanford University football fan, and they have these tailgate parties and all these middle, middle-aged, to be kind to them, some of them are older than middle-aged, they'll get drunk. So I would like to, I would like to have a prohibition policy at her tailgate. I'm not sure necessarily socially wide, but prohibition is it, 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 it got a bad rap. It wasn't altogether bad, was it, Dave? 
Oh, prohibition in the U.S. was a failed experiment. It was a it was a economic and social disaster. Uh, it empowered organized crime. It was completely incapable of accomplishing even its first tier aims. I I don't think everything that I've ever read about prohibition, both academic and journalistic, has been you know in hindsight recognizing that it was a failure. Oh, yeah. You convinced me. We're not going to do prohibition. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think we'll convince. I think there are other problems confronting America at the moment, aside from prohibition. David, it's a real honor to talk to you. Um, that book needs to be written. You need to find an agent. You need to write it down. It's an interesting book about what the craft beer industry tells us about America and vice versa. Uh, and while you look for an agent and a publisher for this book, what else should people be reading in early 2022? I'm a big, everyone I talk to, uh, I tell them about Benjamin Lohr's book, L-O-R-R, is his surname. Um, he's an author. He's based in Brooklyn. He's written in, I think it came out in late 2020, um, a book called Secret Life of Groceries. Uh, and the dark, the subtitle is Ooh. The Dark Dark Miracle of American Supermarkets. Ah, um, you know, I have to get him on the show. You should absolutely get him on the show. I'd be happy to connect you. Um, connect me, Dave. You are uh, you're yeah, that's right. Uh, highly recommend this book. It sounds like it could be dry. It is emphatically not dry. It's remarkable. It's humane. Uh, no um, dry on this show about when I'm making my argument for prohibition, right? <laughs> You're the dry in this case. Yeah, that's what they uh, called them, the dries. Dry. Yeah, yeah. It's only, uh, it's only, it's it's before eleven um, in California, though it's it's already early afternoon. Uh, when are you going to have your first drink of the day, Dave? Uh, I'm meeting up with a, a fellow journalist down here to say my goodbyes, Hannah Raskin, uh, who's a terrific food journalist down here. We're going to go grab some uh, some drinks, I think around 6.30 p.m. So that'll be, you'll be settling into your 3.30 tea or whatever at that time. Yeah, what do you well, do with enjoy. it? And Dave, we'll have to do another show, maybe live at a bar, talk more beer, more alcohol, more what the alcohol industry tells us about America and how we can make the world a better place. Dave, real pleasure to talk. Keep well, keep drinking, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Terrific. Thanks so much, Andrew.